Well, my name is Darren Weeby. For those of you, of you who don't know me, and our pastor Steve is in Nepal, and I'm amazed that you still showed up, knowing that I'm going to be here. Let's pray, and we'll get started. <clears throat> Lord, I am particularly familiar and aware of my limitations, and I am. Uh, In this moment, I am in a real way aware of what you can do. I pray that you would expand our knowledge and our our thoughts of what you can do. I pray that, as one of my friends says, that you would resize us. And that you would make yourself look great and you would make yourself look big and so that we would trust you in every situation in life. We pray this in your name. Amen. If you would, open your Bibles to Mark 4. Mark 4, a story that I'm probably pretty convinced that most of you at least know quite well. Mark 4, verse 35, the calming of the storm. <clears throat> Mark 4:35 says this, On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them and in the boat. I'm sorry, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said, Teacher, do you not care? that we are perishing. And he awoke and he rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? You know, one of the things about Rock Valley Bible Church that I love is we ask questions every week that are deep and that have eternal perspective and that have eternal importance. You know, we don't ask questions like five ways to get better grades or seven ways to feel great and lose weight. You know, we ask questions that are deep and that matter. And I would argue that there is maybe no bigger question than the question that these disciples asked at the end. They said, who then is this? Who is Jesus? I went to um, the Rockford Library this week. I go there about once a week, I think. I love the place. But there are all different number of books about who is Jesus. Here's one. Influencing like Jesus. 15 biblical principles of persuasion. So evidently God came to be Teach us how to win friends and influence people. Or here's another one that uh, I found. Jesus was a liberal. And his claim about who Jesus was, here's one phrase. He believes that Jesus was filled with the Spirit of God. But then he says, yet personally, I don't believe that Jesus was or is identical with God. Nor do I think that that's what he believed either, based on biblical evidence. Then we have another one. John MacArthur says this, the Jesus you can't ignore. Whoops. Better not ignore the book either. Um, What you must learn from the bold confrontations of Christ. He's basically saying, well, a lot of people think that Jesus was just this meek and mild person, but 
in reality when it came to the false teachers or the hypocrites. He had harsh things to say, and in times he was maybe very hostile. And then on the other spectrum, I found this one, the Jesus Papers, exposing the greatest cover-up in history. Uh, among other things, he believes that Jesus married Mary Magdalene and um, survived the crucifixion. And then this one gets honorable mention for just for the title. Is Garth here? No, he's not. I thought this would... Only Garth Reckoners could love this one. Deer Hunting with Jesus. Yes. I have no idea what it's about, but I, I like the title. So. <clears throat> so those are all the different perspectives of the... Well, those are some of the perspectives of what you can find at the local library. But I would argue that probably there are a lot of different ideas of who Jesus is here as well. You know, there may be some of you who are curious... Maybe you haven't bought into all the claims of Jesus, but you're thinking about who Jesus is. And maybe there's some of you who are skeptics. You know the claims of Christ, but you doubt them. And to you, I would just say, I hope you feel welcome here. I hope that we can interact and we can honestly have dialogue about who we think Jesus is. And if you are going to reject Christ, I guess my question to you is, are you really rejecting the Christ of the Bible? And maybe there are some of you who think, you know exactly who Jesus is. You have Jesus down pat. And he fits into your cute little box. Well, in Mark, as you, if you scan through Mark, there's all different takes on who Jesus is. You know, not just the library and not even in this room, but even all through Mark, there's different takes on who is Jesus. And so I think it's another cautionary tale to us of maybe we really can stand to learn about who Jesus is. As we scan through Mark, Mark 1, he's, he's baptized and Jesus said, or God says this. In one, verse 11, He says, You are My beloved Son. With You I am well pleased. And then we still in chapter 1, to an unclean spirit, or an unclean spirit is confront, confronts Him in the temple and He says, You are the Holy One. And He says that to another unclean spirit in 3.11. And then there's the scribes. In 2.7, he said, they come to Him and they say, why does he speak these things? He's a blasphemer. Or in other places, the scribes call him and say he's possessed by Beelzebul. But then this one of all things, in chapter 3, if you, as you keep going in 3.12, his family hears about him. His family of all people, you would think that they would know him, and they, they think, quote, 3.21 says he is out of his mind. And then we go to 6-2, and he goes back to his hometown. And all the people hear about him, and they say, where does he get this? Isn't he the carpenter, the son of Mary? There's other people who said, well, maybe he's Elijah in chapter 6. Or Herod, after he had just put John the Baptist to death by a beheading, he thinks, well, maybe this Jesus is John the Baptist come to life. And there's others, but at the very end, there's a centurion, 1539. And he says this in 1539. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that, that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this is the Son of God. And so there's all these different perspectives of who Jesus is. And I think in a lot of ways, we are very similar. See, we create our own idea of who Jesus is. We like these things about Jesus, and we don't like these things, so we accept these things. 
And the only problem is it looks just, he looks just like us. He really doesn't look like who Jesus really is. Like the Jesus of the Bible. And so I think we need to get reoriented. We need to have another a view of what C.S. Lewis talks about in A Grief Observed. He talks about Jesus being the great iconoclast. About Jesus, he has, we have this idol and we have this image of him and he, it needs to be broken. C.S. Lewis says this, Images of the holy easily become holy images. Sacrosanct. My idea of God is not a divine idea. It has to be shattered time after time. He shatters it himself. He is the great iconoclast. So I would say, just like C.S. Lewis, I want to worship God, not my, just my idea of who God is. And for those of you who think that that may be a foreign idea, I would argue to you that maybe all through eternity, for those of you who are Christians, it will be our pleasure to really continue to learn the depth and the breadth and the greatness of who Jesus is throughout all eternity. But see, there are other people in this story because there are his disciples who said, the first question that we need to ask is, who is Jesus? But then the second question comes to us by Peter because he says in 829 when Jesus asks, who do you say that I am? He says this, you are the Christ. But he clearly had no idea what he was talking about, didn't he? Because late, just shortly after there, Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. So my first question to us today is, who is Jesus? But then my second question is, practically, who is Jesus in your everyday life? Or more specifically, who is Jesus when you are afraid? When your greatest nightmare comes true, who is Jesus then? When that which you worry about most, or that you think about most, the possibility reveals itself. And I'm not just talking about maybe those of you who have a fear of needles going to the hospital to get a shot. I'm talking about those of you who have to go to the hospital and the doctor says, come back next week. It might be cancer. <clears throat> so, what, what I love about Mark is, and this, this happens when you're inspired by the Holy Spirit, but what he does is, at the end of this text, he asks the question, who then is this? But he's brilliant in the sense that he answers that question throughout this story. And so I have three points, and so kids, you get your answer right at the beginning. <clears throat> but I'm stealing my three points exactly from Mark in the ESV. In the ESV, it talks about three great things. So first we see a great windstorm, and then we see a great calm, and then finally we see a great fear. So when this story starts, it starts in verse 35, and it says, on that day. And there's two phrases here in verse 35 that I don't want us to skip over. It says, on that day, which is really important as, we'll come, as, as we will see in the story, but what day was that? It was the story, and if you look back in the first verse of chapter 4, it says, he began to teach beside the sea, and a very large crowd gathered about him. So he spent the whole day teaching in parables to the, to the, Jew, the large Jewish crowd and teaching his disciples at the same time. They're on the west side of the Sea of Galilee. And then he says this. He says, at the end of, the, of verse 35, he says, let us go across to the other side. Mark is very intentional about the other side because he uses that again and again and again. And what he's saying is, we're on the 
the west side of the Sea of Galilee. Let's go to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. That's important, and it must have raised an incredible confusion and maybe raised eyebrows of the people. Because the west side is a Jewish area. People knew who Jesus was. The other side, the east side, it was mainly Gentile. And as you see in, verse, in chapter 5, there's bad characters over there. There's demon-possessed people. And so why would he say this? Well, a lot of scholars say, well, he just wanted to take a break, which is certainly true. He probably was exhausted. He spent the day preaching and teaching. But he also wanted to go to the Gentiles. He wanted to go to those unchurched. He wanted to go to those who are weak and disenfranchised and those who are impoverished. As we see, he went, because in chapter 5, he goes and he heals the demon-possessed man, and then immediately he goes back other, over to the other side. And just as a side, I would hope, and I would, I hope it's our dream and our vision of uh, at Rock Valley that we would be wanting to go to the other side. But there's something even greater here because, see, the Sea of Galilee is 698 feet below sea level. And it's surrounded by hills on every side. And so it's this perfect place where a storm can arise at any moment. And so just going to the other side isn't just a simple weekend jaunt across a pond. You know, at least if you're fishing, at least you can stay close to the shore. But at, in the Sea of Galilee, a storm can come up at any moment. And so going to, this, to the other side can be risking your life. It's a perilous situation that Jesus says, let's go to the other side. And sure enough, this time as they go to the other side, we see the great storm. The great windstorm. Now, many of us are, have no experience of being in the ocean, being at the risk of nature. In fact, I, we're so landlocked, it talks about Jesus being in the stern of a boat, and I to be quite honest, I didn't know what a stern was. It's in the back. If you're, it's the back of the boat, if you're wondering. But we live a life that is so safe and so secure, never at the risk of the elements of nature. In fact, I tried to think of when is ever a time that I have ever been susceptible to the risks and the forces of nature. And there was one that came to my mind, and as it came back to my mind, there were chills that came back. It was just a couple of years ago that uh, we went to go visit Maggie's family up in Car- out in Colorado. And at that time, there was one of my uh, co-workers that went with us. And so we decided one day to go climb James Peak. It's about an elevation of about 13,500 feet. And so in that process, you know, the, you have to get up to a trailhead, and then you have to climb the mountain and climb back down and and make it safely home. But there's one rule about if you're climbing mountains. And that one rule is you never summit after, uh, after noon, after 12 o'clock. And the rule is this, because storms can come up at any moment when you're in the mountains. Within like five minutes, it could be perfectly clear. And then five minutes later, it could be a torrential downpour or a great storm. And see, the, if we, you may not even, we may not know about seas and we may not know about mountains, but there's a thing at about 11,500 feet. It's called timberline. 
or tree line. It's where um, trees can, can exist. There's not enough oxygen above 11,500 feet, so trees really don't exist above that elevation. So once you get above that elevation, if there's a storm, you make a really good six-foot lightning rod. And so obviously the reason that you don't, you don't summit after noon is because if a storm comes in, your life is very likely in danger. Well, me and my buddy had threw caution to the wind a couple of years ago, and so we drive up the winding dirt potholed road, and we get to the trailhead. We summit at about 2 o'clock in the afternoon. We look around, and the, but the great thing about being above treeline is that you can see for miles and miles and miles, being amazed at nature and amazed at the wonders of God. So we summit and we sit there for a while, and off far, far, far away is a very small little gray cloud. Well, as we're coming down, and it's not about maybe 10 minutes later, probably about seven or eight minutes later, we look up and the whole sky is dark, dark gray. So we look at each other, and there was no brotherly love. We, we take off and we want to be the first ones into the tree, trees. But I can only imagine this is how the disciples were. They were terrified. And there's two other phrases that show up in this. In verse 36, it talks, Mark says this. It says, there are, two, there are other boats with him. Now, this, doesn't, this phrase doesn't show up in Matthew's account, and it doesn't show up in Luke's account either. I think the importance of that is to show that, hey, this storm just came out of nowhere. There was no, there was no impending storm in this story. I think there's another phrase. It's in verse 38. And it says that Jesus was asleep on the cushion. There's a great detail here because a lot of the Bible scholars say that Peter was the one who told Mark all these stories. And so, as Peter is sharing with the, these stories with Mark, he, he remembers, yeah, Jesus was asleep on a cushion. I think it speaks to the legitimacy and the truthfulness of these Gospels. But here in the middle of this storm, irony of ironies, here's these professional fishermen waking up a religious leader to tell them that they're going to drown. They're terrified. These disciples are also, I think, upset. Who was this man who got them in this mess in the first place? Now, if you go through Mark, before you get here, there's a lot of other miracles that Jesus has done. For instance, he heals a withered man with a withered hand in chapter 3. In chapter 1, he heals an unclean spirit. He cleanses a leper. But this is the first time that the disciples are on the hook. This is the first time that they're in trouble. They're going to Davy Jones' locker. And they are terrified. See, there's many people who say the purpose of this miracle is this. If you have Jesus in your boat, He'll calm all the storms in your life. And while you can make that argument... It's at the sake of the beginning of this story. See, because if Jesus calms the storms, it's also God who creates the storms. Not only that, but Jesus is the one who's leading them into the storm. And where is Jesus in this moment? Asleep. He's the one who wanted to go to the other side. In the midst of difficulty, Jesus appears not to care. And that's a simple fact, isn't it? That following Jesus, sometimes He takes us into the middle of life's storms. 
And we, like the disciples, say, Jesus, don't you care? Do you not care? I'm in the middle of this, and you are nowhere to be found. Do you not care? <laughs> I, if you're honest with yourself, you've asked that this week, and maybe this morning. I thought about that this week through my inc- an incredibly difficult week of work, long hours, difficult times. I'm preparing for the sermon. One of our van, or our van is getting a rebuilt transmission. And this week of all times, my car has significant problems that needs to be attended to. And the question is, Jesus, don't you care? Do you not care? But then look at Jesus, what He does in verse 39. He says, it says, And He awoke and rebuked the wind. And He said, Peace, be still. He speaks to the wind like a disobedient child. <clears throat> but what the miracle is, is that there's a great calm. Not only does the wind stop, but also the waves. There's this great Serene calm in the story. Now, if you're a parent and you have children like me, which I know most of you with children and you're, they're much like mine, <clears throat> there's this great storm right before bed, if they're, especially if they're really tired, right? There's this great chaos and then they go to sleep and there's, you th- listen and there's this great calm. Or perhaps what sometimes happens around my house is that we put the kids to bed, and for those of you who know Gage and have a sleep in the same uh, room upstairs. So they go to bed, and we come back downstairs, and all of a sudden there's doors coming off hinges. There's holes being put into the walls. There's beds that are falling apart. And so you start a lot to go upstairs loudly, usually, and all of a sudden, by the time you get to the top, there's this great calm. And if you look at their faces when you go in there, it's just amazing. You know, there's this, almost this angelic face. This sweet smile on their face. It's as though a halo should be around the head, you know? Well, the, the question that Mark wants us to answer and wants us to ask is, who is Jesus? And see, Mark is being very deliberate here because... In the Old Testament, to the first century Jewish reader, they knew exactly what Mark was doing here. Because throughout all the Old Testament, the the Old Testament is being very clear about saying that God is the one who's in control of creation. And God is the one who calms storms, who opens the the sea. In fact, listen to Mark, uh, I'm sorry, to Psalm 106.9. He rebuked the sea, Red Sea, and it became dry. This is the exact same phrasing here where he rebukes the wind. And so for the first century reader who's familiar with the Old Testament, especially that psalm, Mark is doing something really radical here. He's saying Jesus is God. Jesus is in their, God is in their midst and they have no idea. Jesus just spoke, and it was done. Unlike Moses, unlike other people, unlike Elisha, Jesus spoke, and creation is listening to the voice of the Creator, and it was immediate. And I want to camp out here for a second, because we 
that's the idea of what theologians call God be or Jesus being fully God and fully human and fully man. And I think in a, in a lot of real ways, we, if you're a Christian, you, you accept that and you acknowledge that, but I don't know that we really think through what that ultimately means. In fact, I was talking to Maggie this week and I said, you know, it, it, so many people, I think, think of Jesus as being this, in this, especially in this story, they think of Jesus being um, appearing to be man. He's really God, but he's, he's, he's God, so he's not really tired. He's kind of just feigning sleep. He's being... You know, he has all these powers. He's just waiting for this. He knows the storm's coming, and so he's just kind of doing what my kids do when I get up the, at, to their bed. There's this appearance of sleep. And he's, he's not really this, this fully man person. And, um, and Maggie said, well, the only problem is nobody thinks that way. And I said, well, I used to. <laughs> and um, so the question is, who really is Jesus, and how does it work that he's fully man and fully God? And what the theologians would say, he's one person but two natures. There's this divine person, or this divine nature of Jesus, but then there's also this human nature of Jesus. They're never separate, but they are to be distinguished. And so it forces us to grapple with these uh, scriptures like Philippians 2, 6, and 7. It says, who though he was in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. So I think as we ask this question, how really did this interact? How was Jesus really, had, how did he have a divine nature and how did he have a human nature? And if you really think through that, I would argue that it, it's a great confusing thing. I thought through it all week and um, it has confused and it has boggled the minds of theologians for years and years. <clears throat> but I think if we understand or try to get a grasp on who this is, we read Jesus in a different light in all the Gospels. Because the question is, in his human nature, did he have knowledge that the storm was coming? Or did he, was he really sleeping? And I would argue that Jesus lived almost all of his life within his human nature. So that, now we have to be careful because if you don't understand this, you'll call me a heretic. and I don't want that to happen. Um, but he didn't lay aside his omnipotence and um, his omniscience and his omnipresence. But in a real way, I think he lived almost all of his life here on earth in only his human nature. Although his divine nature existed within him, it was... Uh, latent, or it was, it was, it wasn't set aside, but it was in the background. Every once in a while, on a rare occasion, like when he gets woken up out of a dead sleep, it shows forth, and his divine nature is made manifest. But in almost all of his other life, like as we see in, in chapter five, when the woman who has been bleeding for for twelve years, she says, "Who?" T-, or he says, "Who touched me?" I don't think in his human nature he knew who that was who touched him. And so I think the point is he relied in his human nature in almost all situations, in all aspects of his life. And he relied on Christ, or he relied, I'm sorry, on the Holy Spirit to help him in the situations. 
And so in this story, I think he was exhausted. He had been preaching all day. He was asleep, and I think he woke up to the disciples expecting to be on the other side of the lake. But he wasn't. So he calmed the storm, and then his question to them in verse 40 is, are you still, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? His question is to them is, can you trust me in every situation? You see, you can, call, you can trust me in the calms of life, but can you trust me? Do you still have, do you have, not have faith in the storms of life? It's one thing to trust me when everything's going great, but what about when there's storms? But maybe some of you are just the opposite. You don't know what you would do with a great calm in your life. You need chaos. You need stress just to function. A great calm would force you to think about those deep questions that you are so skillful at avoiding. Or maybe what you have what Tim Keller says in, in our, the book we're going through as small groups. You have the idol of suffering. Only when you're hurt or in a problem do you feel worthy of love or able to deal with guilt. And then we come to the great fear. Because the, he, ironically, he tells them, why are you afraid? He tells them not to be afraid. And then it says, and they were filled with a great fear. There are, I would argue, as I read through Mark, I would argue the greatest response to Jesus was one of fear. Throughout all of Mark, people see God or see Jesus and they are afraid or they are astonished or marvel at Him. In fact, this is just the first of four stories about people experiencing who Jesus was, is, and was and fearing Him. In verse 15, uh, chapter 5, verse 15, after the townspeople see that Jesus has cast the demons out of the man, it says they were afraid and they asked Him to leave. Or this woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years he asks, who touched me? And in verse 33, he said, he, she came to him, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him. And he, he was on his way to Jairus' house to heal, to raise his daughter from the dead. But on the way, in chapter, in chapter 5, in verse 35, the men, people come and they say to Jairus, your daughter is dead. But Jesus' response to him is in verse 36. Do not fear. Only believe. So the point is this. If you haven't been drawn to fear the Jesus of the Bible, then you don't know him well. Or put it another way, the real Jesus of the Bible creates in us a reverent fear of him. You see, because the fear of the storm wasn't that the disciples had wasn't removed. It was just redirected. They had this storm of, the, of this fear of the storm and it became redirected to a fear of God. And so I would say, until you have the great fear, you will be subject to any number of fears. But if you have come to a place to have the great fear, a fear of God, you will never truly fear anything in this world. Isn't it the phrase from Amazing Grace? "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and fear, and grace my fears relieved." See, Jesus is God. 
And that's the point of this story. And He demands our fear. Because first, He is over creation. He is the one who was able to just speak. And the storms are calm. He is over the earth. And who is this Jesus? Who is over in control of this earth that is traveling at 67,000 miles an hour around the sun? That just happens to be 93 million miles away. Who is this Jesus that creates in us this uh, that in our in our body gives us a body that every hour one billion cells are being replaced and maybe this is some, more true to for some of you than others but who is this Jesus that gives the average human one hundred thousand hairs on their head but who who else who Jesus is also one who is in charge of the hearts and men, hearts and minds of the men and women. And I was just thinking, and I was drawn to, to fear and thinking about the different people that are in my small group. See, before we do, before we go through our small group, there are, we share our life stories and where the Lord has brought us to this point. And so, there was one woman who talked about <clears throat> who Jesus is and she talked about how at an early, she adopt, they had, her and her husband adopted a daughter at an early age, and at, the, at a young age they discovered she had cystic fibrosis. And at the age of 18, their daughter died. And then it was 10 years ago, her husband left her. But who is this Jesus that has worked in this woman's life to love God and she has made great sacrifices to care for her grandchildren? Or then the next story was one of how the Lord has worked in this man. Years ago, his marriage and his life was on the rocks. But it was through the prayers of family members after weeks and months. And now this man is one of the greatest encouragers in this church. Or then there was the next story. And I just thought, who is this Jesus that has worked in this woman's life? She grew up in a godly family. And instead of turning away, she realized how blessed she was. Over and over in her life story, she talked about how the Lord has blessed her. And she is now one of the greatest uh, hosts for our small group. But then, the most fearful thing that Jesus has done is dying on the cross who is this Jesus that is willing to take our sin upon Himself? It is only through Jesus that we are able to have a proper and a reverent fear of God. So my question again is, who is Jesus? And who is Jesus to you? See, some of you don't trust Him at all. Some of you still doubt His claims. And to you I would say you should be very afraid. You should have a different fear than a reverent fear of God. Because in Mark 10.28 it says, And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear Him who can destroy both soul and body. Maybe there's others of you who have faith and you trust Him in the calms of life but not the storms. But But the fact is, Jesus' work on earth is complete, isn't it? He lived his life. 
He died. He rose again. And Jesus' life really isn't up for debate. Jesus, If Jesus is God, if Jesus is who He claimed He was, if Jesus is God, who's Mark saying He is in this story, <clears throat> then He is God, which in Exodus 3, when Moses asks, Who are you, God? He says, I am who I am. I will be who I will be. Jesus, the person of Jesus is not up for debate. <clears throat> it made me think about the story of a man who went to go look at the Mona Lisa. I've not seen it personally, but I'm told that it's not a real big, large portrait. But the man went to go look at the Mona Lisa and he stared at it for, for quite some time and he looked at it and I, there's a guard, evidently, who's right next to the Mona Lisa. And the man, after looking at it for some time, he turned to walk away and he said, I don't like it. To which the guard looked at him and responded, Sir, these paintings are no longer being judged. The viewers are. And so the question isn't really, who is Jesus? God is not being judged. You can pretend that you're making a decision on who Jesus is. The question is, who am I? Who, is, who are you in light of this great God who is over all things? How will you respond when God maybe gives you a storm in your life? Maybe brings you into the middle of it and maybe seems not to care. The question is, who am I? Will you allow the storms to make you rely on Him? Will you see His power in them? And will you trust Him more fully? Or maybe in the calms of life, will you see that that's your, His blessings on your life? Or the question is, will you have a holy and a great reverent fear of Him? Because He's not up for debate. Let's pray. Lord, that is the question. We, we need to ask and we need to think through who You are, how great You are, and we need to be overcome by Your greatness and by Your mercy. But the real question is, who are we and how will we respond? May we ask, how great of a God are You that You would work in our lives, that You would die on the cross, to bring us to salvation. And for that, we are eternally thankful. We pray this in your name. Amen. That the Lord of all the earth Would care to know my name Would care to feel my hurt Who am I That the bright and morning stars Would choose to light the way Of my ever-wandering heart not because of who I am, 
But because of what you've done Not because of what I've done But because of who you are I am a flower quickly fading Here today and gone tomorrow A wave tossed in the ocean A vapor in the wind Still you hear me when I'm calling Lord you catch me when I'm falling And you've told me who I am I am yours Who am I that the eyes that see my sins would look on me with love and watch me rise again? Who am I that the voice that calmed the sea would call out through the rain and calm the storm in me? Not because of who I am, but because of what you've done. Not because of what I've done, but because of who you are. I am a flower quickly fading, here today and gone tomorrow. A wave tossed in the ocean. A vapor in the wind Still you hear me when I'm calling Lord, you catch me when I'm falling And you told me who I am I am yours Who shall I fear? Whom shall I fear? Yeah I am yours. I am yours.